This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to Talking Dirty, another of our specials focusing on East Ruston, Old Vicarage and all of the wonderful things happening there, this time in February. Over at aforementioned garden, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, its co-owner, co-founder, co-gardener, uh, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. Well, and thank, thank you very much and good morning to you. I tell you what, you always look so beaming and it, it, what, you, what weather have you got? We've got the sun just just trying to get through today. A wet night again, of course, but there we are. But you look as if you're beaming in sunshine today over in Cambridgeshire. Thought is Maria Sophia Fridrikson, as ever. Charming, wonderful, witty. Ah, I love you. <laughs> I love you too, uh, though it's amazing what sleep deprivation does for you. Uh, it was raining in the <laughs> night. I can testify to that because I was up with my poor, slightly feverish baby, um at uh at, i think it was half three so it was definitely raining in cambridge at that point uh, he fingers <laughs> crossed is doing much better is much happier this morning so we've sat down to talk about um east ruston old vicarage which i was so sad to miss the snowdrop day the snowdrop openings the hardy plant society day i mean it has all been going on in your garden alan absolutely it has and, i mean you know the two things I'm sitting here this morning and there's two things. There's a pond outside the window here. Um, and, you know, you know that spring is coming and it's very warm when the fish are on the top wanting to be fed. Um, and they've been, I haven't seen them hardly at all during the winter, but I mean, there they are. That's what happens. And the bird song. It's just wonderful. Um, we're starting to get a bit of a dawn chorus again. Not a full dawn chorus yet. Obviously, it's too early for that. But it's the day length and it's the temperature and it makes all the difference. Now, back to snowdrop day. Wow. Well, I mean, to say that we were dumbfounded is, is ridiculous. I mean, we had a ridiculous number of people. We had over 1,000 people on that uh, on that day. And, um, I mean, we hadn't expected such a huge turnout. And so, therefore, you could say we were understaffed. But Graham rang me about, I don't know, half past 10 in the morning. He said, you better come to the car park. I'm going to have to open the overflow. And um, to open the overflow, you have to be directed from the car park proper through a gate to another car park. And... So it went on, and then we had to call Vicky from the plant stand to come up and give a hand. <laughs> and everybody was in such lovely, lovely moods and things, and an awful lot of people that hadn't been before because they didn't know, you know, from the car park how to get into the garden and all the rest of it. But, um, no, it was an absolutely wonderful, wonderful day. And we sold a very expensive plant on that day, which I was thrilled about, because we have in the garden um, some rather good Edgeworthias, Oh, you know, Edgeworthia okay. chrysantha, and uh, I mean, ours are flowering very, very early. They don't normally flower probably until the end or February, beginning of March, but they're flowering now. And um, we had this one plant, and it was about eighty pounds. It was a huge one, um, and we sold it. I mean, <laughs> that is strange, where to say the least. We can't mention Edgeworthia. Chrysantha without talking about red dragon well I can't anyway because I just dream of a day when I have this in my garden and I know we've mentioned it in the past but if perchance you've happened upon this podcast and you've never heard us before you've never heard of red dragon before I think it's a bit miffy I think it's 
got to be in exactly the right place to get it to succeed. But it is just such a wonderful plant, such a glorious colour. Well, yes. Yes to all of those things. I mean, it is. And it's also in very short supply. I don't know that many people have got it. And I did hear, I bought my plants in from my wholesaler friend. Um, and he said to me afterwards, he said, if, is your red dragon still alive? And I said, yes, it is. I planted two. One died, I have to say. Um, but the other one has thrived and is absolutely looking splendid. Of course, it's at that point now where there's a few flowers open and the huge rush is yet to come. So there's a huge anticipation. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, everybody loves it, probably because there's a dearth of unusual flowering shrubs at this time of the year. Um, anyway, I have did a little bit of research and I find it very difficult to find anyone that stocks it. I think there is a, a farmyard nursery, I think, over in Carmarthen. I think they've got it. Um, by the way, if anybody's listening, they do an excellent mail order service. If you're tempted, do give them a call. Um, but I would give them a call first to see whether they've got it or not. Um, and um, I don't know. It, uh, well, my feedback that I got when I had my consignment from Richard, I only bought about 10, two of which I, I kept, um, is that most of them failed. And I think you're absolutely right when you say that this uh, red dragon is a miffy little dragon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the one that's there, I can't fault it. In fact, I'm going to have to, I keep putting it off, but it, I planted it rather too close to a stone path and it's gradually encroaching onto the path. And I'm going to, do I leave it for another year? I think I'm going to have to leave it forever. It People can just get past. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's, that's how you feel about shimmy, it. Shimmy, shimmy, shimmy. Yeah, yeah. But no, I mean, the, the snowdrop day was wonderful. It's helped by the fact that we had good weather. And I think that, you know, when you come, when I came back from the car park and I walked through the front drive where the sellers all are and there were smiling faces from all the sellers, I thought, yay, <laughs> somebody's hit the jackpot today. And of course, the great thing for you hosting an event like that is you get first dibs. You're out there letting people in, getting them set up first thing in the morning. And I'm sure having a little perusal of those stalls, maybe picking up one or two special plants. <laughs> well, I had to buy from Joe because I feel I have to have more of it. And that's the snowdrop that, that you and he connived together to give the name Alan Gray to. So I bought three of those and they're both, they're, they're still very, very expensive. I mean, they were £100 each, I have to say that. And you can look at me and say, silly old fool, he's got more money than sense, but I don't care. <laughs> but he only had three and I had to have them because I want to build up stock of it. So that if people come and they want to see it, there it is. And I don't want it to be uh, two or three little snowdrops. I want them to be a nice patch. Um, and so I did buy that. And I also bought an Aranthus or Aconite from, um, from Joe because I was in the garden about two weeks ago, if that, of Brian Ellis. Um, he a galanthophile um, frame. If you look at his Instagram post, I mean, he, he posts something every day and there's, there's always so much interest, but especially snowdrops and aconites. But then we go on to dwarf irises and lots of other lovely things as well. And ferns. He's not a week in the year that Brian Ellis, no. a bit like yourself, doesn't have something fantastic in his garden and yeah. also on his Instagram. Galanthaholic, mm. one of my favourite accounts. Yeah. As it often is when you go to see Brian, it's not just the snowdrops that you look at. Your, your, your attention is suddenly grabbed by something else, and it was grabbed by two things. The first was a fern. I don't know what it is, but I think it's a polystichum of sorts. But he said he gave me the name. I've lost it, and it doesn't matter. 
And he said, you can't get it anywhere. And I thought, I must have it. So I came home blah, 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 on the internet. And he's absolutely right. It isn't anywhere. So, I'm, you know, it's one that you have to put on a wish list somewhere. Um, leave your name in the hope that you might get it. And maybe 10 will come along at once. Who knows? <laughs> um, and the other thing I saw was an aconite. And it's one that stood out. I don't know particularly why. It just called to me. And it's a lovely little clump. And it has the most amazing name. It's Aranthus Doos, D-O-O-Z-E. And he had this clump and it's a semi-double flower. It's got flecks of green on it. And there's some of the um, in, inner petals are slightly serrated. It's a silly thing, isn't it? When a silly old man like me gets excited over a diminutive little thing like an aconite. But I have to say that, you know, um, my aconites that I bought probably one pot full of last year, and they're very small, um, when you first have them, they have increased remarkably well. I haven't noticed any seedlings around them yet, but I've noticed that the clumps have, have got bigger. So I'm going to be dividing those. In actual fact, I'm going to do it this morning because, you know, we do it when they're in the green. They're just going over. And we do the same with snowdrops. Um, for instance, we and we don't oversplit either. Um, for instance, I bought three, you know, five pots of a, a snowdrop called Daphne's Scissors last year. And they have done so well that we split them, but we split each clump into two. So we've now got 10, but I kept them surrounding the original clump, if you see what I mean. So you're making that little drift of them that much bigger. You don't have to have acres and acres of these special snowdrops, but I think they do look better if you've got a a reasonable sized um, patch of them. And so we're going to be doing that. And we've been doing, or Ian has been doing this actually, because he goes off and he says, I think before I go home, I'll just go and split a few snowdrops. And off he goes with the watering can because we puddle them in whenever we do it. I mean, a little tip for everybody, because if you're dividing these plants, you want to make sure that the root uh, roots are in contact with the soil so they can carry on getting the nutrients that, that they need to the rest of their growing season. Um, and so we puddle them in and then off we go again. And it's, it's quite fascinating because the next year I probably forget where I've done it. You know, I won't forget the aconites because I haven't got many of those, but lots of the snowdrops I'll probably forget. And I think, gosh, look at that. There was only a few there last year. Now there's masses. So it's an ongoing situation. It's just, it's so fulfilling actually. And when you, when you, if I think that you, you know, I'm a silly old fool. I spent a hundred pounds on a snowdrop called Alan Gray because I felt I had to have it. But next year I'll probably have three flowers on each of those clumps because the, um, you know, you buy it and you've got one bulb that's flowering. You've probably got another little bulb in there that's fl- going to flower either the year after or the year after that. So it it's, it starts the ball rolling. Mm. And once you've got the ball rolling, it's a bit like, you know, when we used to talk to Richard Hobbs and he used on the radio and he used to say about growing bulbs from seed. And we used to think, oh, goodness me. But Richard, it's going to be five years before it flowers. Yes, it is. But if you start this year in five years time, you'll have something to look forward to. And if you sow something next year in another five years and so on and so forth. So if you if you sow a few seeds from bulbs every year, you're going to get a surprise the next the next year. Do you see what I mean? Five years down the line, probably. What is exciting is uh, you're really not alone in doing this now. If the video you put on our channel is anything to go by, because years ago we talked about growing tulip a spring arrived from seed. We have mentioned this before, but I'll link to the video that we did on that originally and then joyfully because we had so many people not only watching it but wanting a follow-up several years later you dug out where we where you'd sown them and we went through looking at the different stages so that you could see or oh, this is the size of bulb that's coming you know three years however long five years however long it had been between uh the sowing them and then recording the follow-up and that video has obviously also picked up 
for all the people who hopefully are out there growing bulbs from seed. It's exciting. You probably do need a little bit of space to store these pots or trays where you're where you're growing them but um it can also save you an awful lot of money because a packet of tulip spring rice yeah. seed is so much cheaper than the bulbs are well the bulbs are five or six pounds each at the moment and i think one of the things that i would say about um growing tulips from seed just to make life a little bit easier um if you sow them in deep long-term pots i mean i did mine when we did the thing i did mine in in trays and i left them outside well i don't do that anymore i've learned because if you sow, sow them in sow three or four seeds in a deep long tom pot, cover the, uh, the surface with gravel and then put it outside and leave it, um, you'll get a little something that looks like a piece of grass. That's a tulip germinating, you know. And if you if you have tulips that germinate and you keep them weed free, you're going to pull a lot of them out because you're not going to recognize the seed, the seed leaf, you know. So I, th I think by keeping my seed in a long tom, I can keep it clean, relatively clean anyway, and I can let them grow on for three years and then I can decide where I'm going to put them. And I plant the whole thing. I tip the whole thing out of the pot, dig a hole and put it in, or I dig a hole and then tip, tip it out. You know what I mean? Um, so you've got that, you've got a clump of sprangeri there. And the other thing I'd like to mention is the fact that sprangeri, like lots of other species tulips, has actually much, much smaller bulbs than the hybrids that we grow for the garden. So don't be disappointed if your bulbs are quite small. I mean, when I say small, oh, what can I equate them to? Something a bit bigger than a broad bean, I suppose, a broad, broad bean seed. Um, but then they are relatively small. Um, so don't think that, you you know, you need to plump them up. The other good thing about a long tom is I have heard from Jane Ann Walton that when she grew tulip sprangeri from seed in a pot, they escaped because they they dug down. They, they escaped out the bottom of the pot. So I'm assuming that a long tom might... Uh, stop them from well, that's why yeah that's one of the reasons I do it because quite often you will find that tulips um if they want to be perennial they will send what they call a dropper bulb out and it's like this kind of rhizome that comes out the base of the bulb and it goes down and then it when it gets to its right depth it forms another bulb and that is the which it, you know is a key sometimes to if you if you if you had tulips out as bedding and you dig the bulbs up and the following year, you'll get one or two coming up and you think, well, how did I miss those? Well, you didn't. It's because they sent down a dropper and it, that dropper is probably six inches below the, the, the mother bulb, if you like, that you dug up. Um, so it's, it's strange. And I think it is um, it is a way of actually encouraging tulips to be more perennial. We've got um, one called, um, I can't think of the name of it now, but it's it's an orange tulip. Richard Hobbs mentioned it, orange with it, with a olive green touches on the outside. And he said, you won't get this one because this one came from so-and-so, so-and-so. I meant to get this tulip the year before last, last year. No, the year before last. Last year, I actually um, got onto the bulb list as soon as they came out. And I found a quantity of it in, in I mean, 100 bulbs is what I bought. And I got it from a, from a rather um, nice nursery that is not on the main and that, I couldn't tell you even what, what it was, what it was called, but um, I managed to get a hundred bulbs. They were quite expensive as well. But I mean, you know, uh, my my thought behind that is like lots of other species tulips, they're much more perennial than the big, big fat hybrids. Um, so and I rest they, my might, they might sell seed. I mean, that's always my hope is if I can get some something like Sprangeri, then uh, maybe it will put itself about where it's happy. That would be lovely. Well, there's there's um, one lady who grows bearded irises. In conjunction with her bearded iris, she grows tulip sprangeri. 
And Tulipa Springer, the reason for this is because Tulipa Springer Iris, she wants to know where it is and not weed it out. So if it's growing amongst the bearded irises, it has a similar flowering period because it's the last tulip to flower. And it's just flowering just as the bearded irises start. Uh, um, and they have a long season, depending on variety as well. Um, and she grows masses and masses of it. But I'll tell you what, like most people, she said, I'll dig a few bubbles up and send them to you. Did she? No. <laughs> <laughs> It is an amazing thing when people actually do send them to you. And yeah, I, I must say, I've um, I've got Claude Bidulf now flowering the snowdrop, which is a, a, an amazing thing and a very generous gift uh, to have been sent. So uh, so it, some people super generous and a lot of other people forget. Mind you, I've probably been guilty well, of that Bell myself. Born, <laughs> two years ago, very kindly sent me um, EA Bowls, which is a, a snowdrop, a lovely sort of, and it's got slightly puckered um, seersucker outers. Um, and she she gave me a, a one bulb, I think, came because she's always giving this away to somebody. It was beautifully packed in the green, and I planted it and looked after it, and I've got now four flowers there. So I, it, EA Bowles is doing his stuff and doing it quite well. Oh. I worried that he might be in too much shade, but no, he seems to like it. Now, the great thing for your snowdrop event and for the openings you had after it and for the Hardy Plant Society uh, kind of AGM where lots of very, you know, exciting and excited galanthophiles descended on the garden, the likes of Jimmy Blake alongside Brian Ellis, who we've already mentioned. Um, there was so much appreciation for obviously the garden on a whole, but the winter garden and for all of the, the things alongside the snowdrops. It's wonderful to see all of these cultivars in lovely clumps labelled. That's a joy because a lot of places you go to, they're not labelled. And I learned from a trip to Richard Eyre's garden, I was very lucky uh, that your good friend Val, uh, Val Valerie Jackson, uh, asked me if I would like to go along. Her, her and a group of friends were going to see Richard Ayres Garden, former head gardener at Anglesey Abbey, of course. And I was saying to him what a shame it is that nowadays you go for a walk through their winter garden and none of the snowdrops are labelled. And he suggested it was probably just to stop people going along and digging them up because that's unfortunately what happens if you have a famous collection of snowdrops. People, if they think something is worth a lot of money, might slip a trowel in there and run off with a bulb or two. So um, it's wonderful to come to a garden where you can see what they are and in, and, and look in the flower and, oh, yes, of course. So, of course, that's grumpy yeah, in its yeah. face. And I think, the, I think the main thing from the Hardy Plant Society is that all the Hardy Plant Society members are, of course, plantaholics, not just galanthopaths. This was the galanthus group that came to the garden here. Um, of, of the national group, and and they they only came to the east of England, I think, because Brian Ellis, at their last annual general meeting, had chided them to say, "Well, you don't ever come to the east of England, do you?" Um, so it's always a long way for us to go. Now this year, it's a long way for you to go. <laughs> and so, and they came, and they they had their meeting in the school in Stalham in the morning, their annual general meeting, and then they had two talks, one by a Belgian fella and one by. Um, uh, Brian Ellis and I went to Brian's talk and of course I did learn something you learned something um, at all these sort of talks and he was most entertaining and it was a lovely talk um, and I wanted to see his talk actually because um, there's a very enthusiastic young chap called Dan that comes to the garden here and he works in the garden here occasionally um, and he said I saw Brian Ellis talk if you get the chance you should go and see him he's really good um, and yes he is um, and so I, I did that in the morning and then they had their snowdrop or they'd had their snowdrop sale by the time I got there. So I listened I to Brian. I heard you were coming. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, get well, in there before Alan Gray buys everything. 
But I listened to Brian Ellis and then I I left and the lady was seeing me out because the school is like a rabbit warren, you know, there's corridors on corridors on corridors. Um, and if you go left when you should go right, well, you're in a, in a muddle. Anyway, she said to me, would you like to have a peep inside the sales area before you go? And I thought, well, I know what you're doing. You're trying to wiggle some money out of me, because which she was, of course. And she, I said, well, yes, let's just have a look. There probably won't be anything that I want because, and I have to say, <laughs> I have to say that there was one snowdrop there that I had to buy, and it's it's one of the Fieldgate series. It's called Fieldgate 40. And Fieldgate, they have these, I'm not sure quite what they're called, but like, things like bunny's ears on top of the flower. And they just looked so lovely. I bought four of those. They were they were, they were very um, small amount of money. I can't remember what they were even. And I also bought something from Brian Ellis, but it wasn't a snowdrop. It was an arum. Oh. Um, and, you know, these wonderful marble arums, arum pectum and arum uh, whatever they're called, um, with lovely marble-coloured uh, veining on the leaf. And I put it, so it's not in fairly close distance to some of my better arums, because some of my arums now are self-seeding, and the, the resultant progeny is, um, well, they are quite astonishing. And we, there's one in the garden at the Hardy Plant Society when they came, they were all drooling over it. What's that? What's that? Which one? Which one? And I said, when I said it's a seedling here, you could tell they thought you lucky devil. Um, but I mean, sometimes you see it just pays to let nature take its course. And I think as with snowdrops, you know, you quite often say, hear people say this was found in so-and-so's garden or this was pointed out by. Hmm. And, and, you know, one of the things that Brian was talking about is a site in Norfolk where um, Greater Ricks, had um, a lovely collection of snowdrops, which he bred and didn't breed, really. He just let things happen. Um, and they're still discovering snowdrops in that acre garden, um, in, hidden away in a very sheltered, secretive place in Norfolk. Um, and, you know, they're still discovering new varieties in there. Not well, not necessarily new varieties, but new variations of a variety. Mm. Um, well, it's, so it's, it's, it's why somebody like Joe Sharman is, is so... Uh, extraordinary really that it, he doesn't just let nature do its thing there's so much thoughts gone into trying to bring together certain characteristics which is extremely complicated uh, and that's mm. how come he he and and you know the few breeders like him come up with such extraordinary plants because it's very uh intellectual i suppose it's not yes just put these snowdrops well, near think, each I other and hope that they brilliant. get their jiggy on the brilliance of Joe is that he's not waiting for nature to take its course. He's giving nature a helping hand. Um, so that nature is getting, or Joe is getting there before Dame Nature would naturally, if you see what I mean. That being um, said, and, I mean, it is wonderful in the sort of history of, of snowdrops and glanthophilia. Uh, the, the part that nature has had to play is obviously huge. And when I was in Richard's garden, I fear I won't do this story justice, but I asked him what was the snowdrop that started this whole bug for you because his his relatively small garden is devoted to snowdrops and lots of hookah is planted alongside some beautiful Richard Ayres you're talking about sorry yeah Richard Ayres sorry yeah yeah Cl clarify um so Richard Ayres garden lots of lovely co-planting but definitely all about the snowdrops and it all started with a snowdrop which is very inexpensive to buy I think uh, called Anglesey Abbey and that mm. snowdrop had been so it, it turned up where all the snowdrops were sort of crossing in in the area in the kind of ditch area of Anglesey Abbey, and it was identified, I think, by Stuart Thomas, who was their garden advisor, as some sort of. Oh, Russian, Graham Stuart Thomas. Yes, was it was kind of um, identified. I've got a little tale about. 
I've got a little tale about Graham Stewart Thomas. He was he was a terribly, terribly clever man. I think he was advisor to the National Trust, Gardens advisor to the National yeah. Trust. And he was a slightly pompous man. And he called himself Graham Stewart Thomas because he thought having a surname, Stuart Thomas, sounded much more important than Graham Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> He was also very much into choral music as well, I believe. But yes, he yes, it was. You're right. Uh, Anglesey Abbey was noticed by him. He he identified this snowdrop as some, I think, some kind of Russian species. Anyway, word got out to the Glanthophiles, and they just kept turning up to to Richard. Could we have a bulb of this special snowdrop um, that you've got? at Anglesey Abbey and in order to get hold of it they would come with their bags of special things to swap and that's basically how the collection happened except that when they have ended ended up doing DNA testing on this snowdrop it wasn't what it had been identified as at all so all of these philanthophiles <laughs> had swapped the precious bulbs from their collections in order to get hold of something which actually was just a, a cross between something like Nivalis and Waronii. So um, it, it, they ended up naming it Anglesey Abbey. And I love the fact that that snowdrop, which I had bought purely because I live near Anglesey Abbey and have been there yeah. many times and I like the sort of name behind, or the story behind the name, actually the story behind the story behind the name <laughs> is somewhat better so and and snowdrops like all plants really it's all about the story so i uh I, I thought that was wonderful when i heard richard telling me that uh the other day well lots of plants you know they're only really grown because of the story behind the name aren't they i mean there's an old old-fashioned delphinium called alice artingdale and alice artingdale was a double um double delphinium and it had lots of sort of green in the in it's a very strange color it was almost I don't know what you call it, really. It's it's um, well, it's a bluey green, or is it a greeny blue? I don't know. Um, but she was notoriously difficult to overwinter. Nowadays, of course, they, and she was only really grown because of the the fabled Alice Artingdale, because she's difficult than all the rest of it. And people would say, especially people like me who's sort of slightly thinking they can do anything, they would say, "Well, I can grow it." You know, <laughs> and of course they would lose it in the winter. It either got too wet, or the slugs got at it, or something. Um, so it was a, a miffy, a miffy beast. But nowadays, of course, there are there are delphiniums that you can grow that are as good as Alice Artingdale, if not better. So you know, maybe she's gone out of favour a little bit. But there, you know, and it's the same with snowdrops. It's the same with aconites. I mean, the one I bought when I saw it in Brian's garden has this most amazing name, Doos. Now, does she do or does she don't? I don't <laughs> D-O-O-Z-E. I don't know where the name came from, but it, you, it's not one you're likely to forget, is it? No. I mean, it's, this, it's this wonderful zoom. Well, <laughs> do you know what? Talking of brilliant names, and this is a segue and a half, and plants that I know are uh, are starting to strut their stuff and look rather marvellous in your garden, Prunus Mumi Benny Chidori. That's a good yeah. name. Maybe there was one. And uh, I... So on my wish list, I don't have one next. It's one of those next garden must be high up on the list. Next garden, such a stunning plant. Well, it is if it gets to a decent size, which mine now have. Ours in the garden here. I mean, they they've been in a, a shrub border there, and suddenly, and you know, it's a kind of plant for, for I suppose for um, eleven eleven months a year at least. You don't even notice it. It's there, but you don't notice it. So it really is a. It's not a plant to have in the foreground. It's a plant to have in the midground to the back, if you like, depending on how big your garden is. Mine's sort of midway in a in a shrub border. And now it's just studded with these lovely little carmine rosettes of flowers. That's just so beautiful. And it's the kind of thing you see across the garden, and you 
it attracts your eye one day and you think, what the heck is that? Um, it's just a lovely, lovely plant. But it, it's one of those plants that I think you need a decent sized garden to have for it to justify its space in a way. Yeah. I mean, it depends how much you love it. But, you know, uh, when you have these, I mean, it's a bit like Edgeworthia we were mentioning earlier. Um, Edgeworthia is a lovely, lovely shrub at this time of the year. But, uh, you know, later on in the year, it's probably taking up valuable space in a small garden. Um, but it's all right. It's, if you are if you live somewhere and you, at the end of April, you decided to spend the summer somewhere else, that you would grow it because <laughs> it wouldn't matter what, what it looks like when you're not there. Um, no, it is worth considering some of these early flowering plants. I mean, if you take something like Edgeworthier, it's lovely when it's flowering. Its leaves are slightly willow-like, I suppose, when it when it's out of flower. So it's not a great-looking plant. However, if you take something like a camellia, and we've got one called Saint Ewe, E W E, and uh, the lady from Martin Wick, Philippa, and her friend, her friend went absolutely gaga over Saint Ewe because it was absolutely covered with small, single, bright pink flowers. And because it's small, there's two good things about it. Because if you get a camellia with rather overly large flowers, well, they look out of place in the garden proper. I've got them here. I know I have. Because I look at them and I, I, I tend to sort of think, turn my head the other way. Because I think, you know, I don't know whether I like you or that much because you're so blousy. They, they're the kind of plants that look wonderful in a conservatory, a coal conservatory or something like they have at Chatsworth, where they have these big blousy camellias and under glass. Of course, the flowers don't get spoilt by the weather and they look absolutely wonderful. And they don't look too blousy in that setting, but in a garden setting they do. But St. Ewe, um, because it has these lovely little pink flowers, it looks dainty. Um, and it was just covered in flowers. So she said, have you got plants of this? This lady did. And I said, no, I haven't. She said, oh, well, I must get, I must try cutting. And so I went and picked her a branch. She said, oh, my God. I said, well, I think if you look at the size of my branch that I'm going to give you and the size of my shrub, I can afford to give you this. Now, the other good thing about St. Ewe, and Christopher Lloyd used to write about this an awful lot regarding camellias. And he, too, um, like myself, as as he got older, found that the blousy ones were rather too, uh, just too. We say they're just too, with an extra O. Too! <laughs> um, but St. Ewe is a self-cleaning camellia. means that when its flowers are going over, it drops them. And you can either leave them there. It's a picturesque pink carpet, which I've done with mine until they look very brown and horrible. And then I put them on the compost heap. But lots of camellias, be careful. Try and find out if they're self-cleaning or not, if they hang on to their dead and dying flowers, it, it puts people off. I mean, it don't, they don't look nice. Um, so you really, if you, if you, if you don't get a self-cleaning one and it annoys you, you're going to have to go and pick the dead buds off, dead flowers off. It's a, it's a challenge, shall we say. Talking about whether or not, uh, flowers in particular fit in a garden, I think is really interesting these days, particularly as we get, um, sucked into dahlia orders i say glancing over across the room where a box has turned up this morning from farmer gracie uh it's actually quite heavy i can't remember what i ordered all i know is the baby was asleep and i i had a, a moment of madness and um, not entire madness because i was replacing a few things i'd lost like brown sugar and creme de cassis which i adore and i lost in the hard winter and even the partner was missing them from the garden so I've, I've reordered those I've restocked on those but then other things I no longer buy dinner plates because I could have them at the allotment and that's lovely and they look wonderful but I don't find in the way I arrange flowers arrange flowers <laughs> as if I arrange them the way I plonk a posy of blooms into a small vase 
it's just not not suitable for dinner plate dahlias. I don't. I can imagine at your house some wonderful display of, no. of dinner plates. No, 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 no. No, because I too agree with you. I mean, I too am going off dinner plate dahlias. I mean, I, I, love, mean, I, grow, them. I love a picture I of them. I want to see them on social media, but I just don't know if I want to grow them. No, I, I feel exactly the same, but I have a few in the garden here because visitors like them. You know, when you're open to the public, you have to bear in mind it's not just your taste. Well, you can if you, you know, if you, if you really want to. But I mean, I like to sort of think that, you know, I'm, I'm growing these things because other people like them too. And, and dinner plate dahlias, they are a fascination if you like but i don't want them in my house and i and what you just said about you pick up a little posy and put it in a pot and it's in your house it's just it's to the scale of your house yeah um and, and if mine is not a dinner plate daily kind of house i can tell you that much no but i mean you know you, if you get a bigger slightly bigger house you get a slightly bigger posy that's all you get um and i i do remember colfax and fowler the interior decorating shop they used to be in um um, Bruton Street, I think it is in London, just around the corner from where we were, anyway. And um, I used to look, look at, go and look at their every weekend. They used to go, whoever they were, went to the country, and whoever they were came back. They could lots of people that were working there could do the same because they were all from rather sort of city girls in the in the or in in the week and country girls at the weekend and boys. Um, and, you know, every Monday there would be a fresh posy of something from the countryside. And, you know, you could just say, oh, my goodness, look, this is a, this is the kind of thing. And it was just so, dare I say, country house or should I say country house? <laughs> <laughs> but it was loose and natural and rather lovely. And, you know, when we say arrangement, I know that Bridget Girling does some, or she used to anyway, do some fantastic arrangements. But even she didn't arrange flowers um, as, shall we say, Constance Spry used to in a stiff manner. And it's all about fashion and the way we live and the, what we want, I suppose. <clears throat> but I agree with you. I think a nice natural uh, bunch of flowers is absolutely stunning. Yeah, and smaller dahlias, they they just combine better with the other things I grow. I mean, last year I was finally had my tithonia, which was so glorious and infinitely more strokeable than I'd ever considered it to be. So uh, that was that was a joy. But all the things I had, um, oleagrandiflora, calendulas, cosmos, they didn't want to sit. They did, I couldn't put them next to a big dahlia. They just wouldn't. The scale yeah. would be wrong for for me. I'm not yeah. talented enough to combine them. So, and I go for a kind of whimsical dolly mixture look when I do a little posy of flowers. So anyway, that's the sort of thing I've ordered. But I just think it's interesting that there are plants, whether they're camellias, dahlias, loads of other things, finding a way to put them in the garden, I find is hard. I've I've bought little cheapy things from um, Morrison's before. I don't know if they still do, but certainly when I lived in Norwich, I'd often go to Morrison's and they had like loads of quite nice plants for about 169 outside the front so I'd forever be going in to buy a loaf of bread and come out with a clematis or something and uh and some of them <laughs> well that's great. all right as long as they water them but there's lots of yes. supermarkets they don't water them they don't look after them so you really want to be there no more than two days after they've had a delivery if you can yeah. well I was going in quite a lot I'm not very good at remembering to buy lots of things I, I'm always popping into shops so I sort of go in have a little look buy a thing you know, like buy a plant every time I went in for a, a pint of milk and um, I got lots of really lovely things, but some of them were just so, I don't know, like they were on steroids. And yeah. so I'd sort of dig those up and hand those across to somebody else because I just couldn't get them to work in the garden. 
Uh, yeah. Well, so, I love the way that I noticed that visitors here, especially the ones that I talk to on a regular basis, they will come in and they always do the same thing. They'll come in and they'll talk to you. And then they'll say, well, a month ago, you know, um, so-and-so had um, Brad Mantis and they were only $4.99 each. And they will tell you that. But I, I said, well, I'll go and have a look. Oh, no, they've all gone now. <laughs> Didn't Ian Roof do this to us with Daphne's? Didn't he once go to B&Q and buy like a tray of Daphne Balloon or something? I don't know which Daphne. I'm sure it was Daphne's. And I, oh, I'm just so jealous. I don't have any, I don't have any Daphne's. Can you believe I am saying that sentence? It's like first well, thing that's going in the next garden. But at the moment, there are no Daphne's in my garden. Well, Daphne Balua with you. I mean, it, 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 Daphne Balua is, um, is a little bit tender, you know. It, it's, yeah. Well, a lot you, of people seem to have lost them or had them hard hit by um that, that whatever it was last winter. Not, not the winter just yes. gone, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, for instance, Val, I think, has now got it going at um, where she is, near Royston. Um, but it, it's some people, they, they I mean, for, for a lot of years, she she couldn't grow it. Mm. She tried, but then she gave up because she said, well, I'm not wasting my money anymore because, but now she's obviously got the right site for it. It needs a little bit of shelter. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, I mean, I've got Daphne Balua, um, Mary Rose, which is just, it's a late flowering variety, just kind of starting to flower now. It's got very, very dark pink flowers, and it's very, very good plant, I think. Yes. Lots of the Harvard Plant Society. I mean, we've got them throughout the garden here. Some I grew from seed, and they range in colour from white to sort of various shades of pink to Mary Rose, which is the deep pink. Um, and they all flower at slightly different times because seedlings are genetically different from their parents. So you always get this kind of variation. Some started flowering at the beginning of December, and some and Mary Rose, for instance, is only really starting to flower now. Um, she's been in flower for about two, uh, about a week, I suppose, which is interesting because if you've got the space, you can spread it out. Um, and I did buy quite a few Daphnis, um, and I bought them really to put on the plant stand because people were were wanting them. And I think we were retailing them at something like twenty eight pounds each, and that's what they had to be. But for a lot of people, it was too expensive. And they didn't buy them. So I used them in the garden. And now, of course, those same people are coming to the garden and they're seeing these wonderful plants. And I say, well, you did have, you, you know, you could have bought it. It was, uh, I know it was expensive at the time, but it, today it would probably cost double that. You well, know? do you know, it's, that is the main reason I don't have them in this garden, because despite the fact we're still here from the moment I moved in, I always said, well, we're going to move. And I, yeah. I don't know if I'd be able to take it with me. And I didn't want to leave it to inevitably be cut down by the next person. So yeah, well, that, that, that's spending a lot that of money happen. on a plant which might then get raised to the ground seemed like a well, bad use of my money. The other thing you have to realise is that, I mean, a lot of people say, well, will it grow in a pot? And I said, yes, for a, for a limited number of years, because everything will grow in a pot, uh, providing you look after it, you water it and you feed it. Um, but, you know, you've got to watch it because if it becomes root band in that pot, it will then stop growing and it'll start to go backwards. And then you're, you know, you're facing an uphill struggle to try and get it to grow when in the garden you're gonna take it to. So do remember that. It only it's only for a few years that you can yes. do that. And of course you can grow things. I did this. Peter's got a very nice Acer that we don't want to put in the ground because it was his 30th birthday present. And we just so I kept potting it up. Well now it's a huge pot. It's not <laughs> Not as easy to put up as it once was. So, yeah, you have well, to one, one, that of thing, well. one of the things that I do in the garden here, there's an acer called Flamingo, something, something Flamingo, and it's got pink, it's, it's hectic. It's got Flamingo pink stems to the leaves and to the young, young growth on the plant. The leaves are a combination of pink and cream and grey-green. 
Um, and that sounds like a mess. I mean, it almost sounds like a bowl of sick, doesn't it? But I mean, it, 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 it is a stunning plant. I grow them in pots either side of my front door, which faces north, um, which is what they like because they don't like sun on them too much. Um, but without any overhead shade, if you see what I mean. So it's on the north side of the house. And I've just put two of them in the garden because they've got too big for the pots that they're in. And I've replaced them with another couple of um, aces. Um, I have to say the flamingo one is slightly weeping so that you can in actual fact train a leader up a, up, a, up a cane. So you get this wonderful column of foliage coming down. It hasn't got any foliage on it now, of course, just the weeping stems. Um, but the one I replaced it with is <coughs> Aesophagia aconitifolium, which has got this wonderful fresh green, I suppose the leaves are a bit like an aconitum in that they're quite jagged and things. Um, now I've got, got these in pots. They'll be in pots for three, maybe four years. And then they too will go in the garden and we'll start again. Because I mean, you know, aces in pots are again, you can only do it for so long if you want to maintain the health of the plant. And, and of course we do. I mean, we don't want something sitting on the doorstep that's looking positively horrendous. <laughs> ah. One thing I'm rather pleased about this year um, is the fact that I've, I've got a, a narcissus um, and it's called St. Patrick's Day. And it's a lovely limey green to um, primrose yellow, I suppose, daffodil. And I had two coppers full of them last year and I decided to leave the bulbs in the coppers and we put them where we our nursery stock is kept. So they got watered and fed regularly um, and they died down and we left them and left them in the pot. I took a little bit of the soil off the top, top dressed them with fresh compost and they are absolutely full of lovely new shoots. So that's a little tip for you. If you want a daffodil, but you want to be able to leave in a pot throughout the summer, mind you, remember, you're going to have to look after it until the foliage dies down, which is probably in May or something like that. Um, St. Patrick's Day is a very good one. Look it up and see what it looks like. It's very nice. Oh, sounds marvellous. I, I am a sucker for a green flower. Uh, now, the, the time is absolutely like whirring away. We've we've managed to digress onto a load of different things. I think um, one other thing we wanted to talk about that's been going on at East Ruston is, um, is quite a lot of, of pruning and replanting shelter belts and that kind of behind the scenes action that is so important. Well, yes. I mean, first of all, our shelter belts are getting too big. Um, we planted Monterey pines and they have got rather too big. The other thing about them is, of course, they were quite close together. So lots of the lower branches have lost their leaves and they look a bit untidy. And so what we did when we planted, just after we planted the um, Monterey's, behind them we planted a row of acorns from the home oak, so Quercus ilex. Um, and this row of acorns has grown and they're a bit of a wispy hedge behind them before there's the, the boundary hedge, which is hawthorn. Um, so we've taken some of the... Monterey's out and then and you know after a year it's amazing because you suddenly see these homeworks they're bushing out and they're looking wonderfully sort of healthy and the Monterey pines have probably got to a height of maybe 40 feet maybe more I don't know but you know substantial height and they were making an awful lot of um, shade too much shade really um, although they did their job keeping the wind out and I'm quite happy for that that um, shelter belt to be at a lower level and so we're we're actually taking them out and we're we're reinforcing the um home oak hedge where we've got sort of gaps in it and planting young saplings, which I've got some in a pot which we've grown from in pots which I've grown from seed. And so we're using those as fillers as well. Um and we're planting lots of other things in, in this as this sort of third rate 
third rank of windbreak, if you like. And we're starting with lots of hollies. I mean, Graham loves hollies. We've got over a hundred and goodness knows how many different varieties of hollies. Um, and Joe gave me another one when he came to the snowdrop day. He gave me one with orange berries, which is lovely because they are bright, bright orange. And I'm looking forward to using that. Um, although that's going to go in a more prominent place, but we're filling out with hollies that we've grown from cuttings and things because they're hollies take from cuttings very well done in the winter. And it's nice to be able to do that when you, you know, you've got the time to do it and you haven't got so much on. Um, and so um, we were filling out with things like that. But when we come to the, the winter garden, one of the things that the um, Hardy Plant Society members actually said they were very interested the way we'd used plants in the winter garden to give so much interest. Um, and when when you think of winter garden, you think leaf, bark and berry, perhaps. Um, but, you know, there are other things. And you get to this side of the of Christmas, if you like, or the beginning of the year. And we've got snowdrops and we've got aconites and we've got some of the early flowering things um, like the little irises and things like that. And hepaticas, too. Uh, lovely clump of hepaticas out as well. Um, but they were interested in the way we'd use contrasting foliage. And I was going to say this about which I don't think I mentioned about um Saint you the the camellia because although you you know it seems to happen earlier and earlier the flowers on camellias but they flower and they have this big splash of color and everything else and then what are you left with well what you're left with is a very comely bush and it's why is it comely it's comely because if you look at the leaves they're shiny they're light reflecting they're always cheerful even on a sunny dry day they look as if they've just been rained upon it's that sort of freshness that they have. And so we use them as much for their foliage in the winter garden as well as their flowers. But there's lots of other things that we put with them. I mean, variegated box, for instance, if you seek out cultivars of various box, um, uh, Tim Fuller from The Plantsman's Preference has a very nice weeping variegated box. Well, not only does the variegated foliage, which is creamy yellows and lemons on the, on the green shoots, but the, the shoots sort of splay outwards and they, kind of wheat, they make it like a lovely little dumpling. So there's something nice that you can have towards the front and then you can have your small bulbs in the front of it and things growing through it in the summer if you wish. But it's just search, searching out the different types of foliage. Think of your, well, if you take leaves for instance, think of green leaves, think of, I mean, all shades of green. I mean, you take the green of Pilaria for instance, it's very dark. And then if you go to the green of um, Grisolinius, for instance, um, it is a bright, bright apple green. The contrast is amazing. Textures of leaves, they're different too. The texture of a filaria is very, very leathery. Of Grisolinia, it's soapy in texture. It's a very strange thing. And I can remember going back 40 years, um, Grisolinia was not the kind of shrub you would grow, you would see widely grown in England. It was, we were too cold to grow it properly in the winter. It didn't like us. And you go to Ireland, Southern Ireland especially, and there it would be growing almost to tree-like proportions. And it's just that tiny little zip in a, a blip, if you like, in, in the difference between whether you can keep a plant in this country or whether you can't. Go to the Channel Islands and see what they're growing on the Channel Islands. And you'll see that, you know, outside there, they have the winter flowering brugmansias. Um, we can't grow them outside here because Dame Nature, you know, she has that horrible card up her sleeve and he disappears, comes and goes as he likes. He's called Jack Frost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he comes in varying amounts. Um, but no, the, the, it was interesting to hear people um, comment on the putting together of different kinds of foliage. And if you think about it further on, take it a step further on. It's like people arranging a bunch of flowers, if you like, because what you put together pleases the eye.
Um, and it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong or whether it pleases somebody else's eye. If you put it together so that it pleases your eye, that's really all that matters. If somebody else likes it, that's a compliment. If they don't like it, who cares? It's your garden anyway. <laughs> and um, talking of irrigation, it was something that really caught my eye um, at Anglesey was some of the beautiful combinations um, of, say, a, a really soft viburnum flower and then behind it, a variegated hedge and you get all these lovely kind of creams and pinks mixing mm. together now i actually sometimes when you get a variegated daphne say with a, a pinkish flower i'm not sure i like it but somehow with the distance between them you know of a hedge and a, a bush it just it was working for me and i was very taken with those sort of softer almost i don't know there's like a fairy like palette no wonder i liked it <laughs> well there's a daphne called daphne odora um, and Daphne Odora marginata with a thin uh, golden leaf, uh, the edge to the leaf, was, is slightly hardier than the plain green one. And when we grew Daphne Odora, the first time I ever saw it was at Lanhydrock House in Cornwall. And we were there um, early spring and um, we'd gone down to see the spring gardens in actual fact. And we were there for about a week um, <clears throat> and we went to Lanhydrock House and we were walking from the car park to the round to the shop in the house, in the, one of the stable blocks there. And I said to Graham, that scent, whatever is it, it's amazing. And we got to the, and this was about 30 feet away. And when we got to the door, the entrance door, there were two bushes, one either side, and they looked like dumplings, and they were Daphne Odora Oreo Marginata. Um, and that this scent permeated, I had to have it, and of course I did. Now, later on, there was a variety of Daphne Odora Marginata called Rebecca. Mm. And Rebecca had a much, much wider variegation on the leaf. And it was kind of on the yellow side of cream and it offended you because the flowers came out and it smelled wonderful, but it looked horrendous. This, this is what I'm talking about. That's yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> See, um, plant breeders, they find this new thing and they think it's going to be a lovely plant. I actually, I fell for the hype. I'm a sucker for plants, I guess, so, and I fell for the hype and I thought, wouldn't it be rather nice to have a seat and have four bushes of this Daphne leading up to the seat, two on either side, so that you sit there and you can just close your eyes and, and sniff away to your heart's content and be transported. Um, well, of course, the first year was wonderful. They looked lovely. And then the second year, one died and then another one died. And I think I was left with one. And I, in the end, I thought, yes, well, I'm rather pleased I've only got one because I don't have to look at three others. <laughs> But, you know, eh, yeah. I keep waiting to, to start liking it. You know, because sometimes you can flip. You can go from yeah, not liking the plant to liking it. No, I doubt it hasn't you, happened yet. After this conversation, I doubt you will. <laughs> uh, quite true. Uh, now, um, we must we must wrap things up before babies and dogs start uh, making noises in the background and distracting me. Um, Flomo, I kind of wish we could have posted somebody, particularly when the Hardy Plant Society came to your garden, just posted them by the gate, the exit gate, and asked people what their Flomo was. Because I would have loved the list from proper plants people in particular. What were the plants that they wished they had in their garden? It would have been a whole episode in its own right. But anyway, I've thought of that a bit too late. Um, my Flomo, having not been to your garden for Snowdrop Day, is a snowdrop. And it's nothing new. It's nothing crazy. It's not one of Joe's latest introductions or anybody else's. I mean... There are always those. But when I was in Richard Eyre's garden, his planting of trumps was just looking stupendous. And then I was looking back through some of my screenshots on Instagram where I regularly screenshot plants that I want. And I'd seen that 
Tim Fuller, who was just on the podcast, he had posted Trump's looking fantastic. And I think particularly when you get that low sunlight at this time of year on a nice, healthy, vigorous clump of Trumps, a clump of Trumps, uh, it, uh, <laughs> it just looks fantastic. And I haven't looked how much they cost, but I don't feel like they're one of the more expensive snowdrops you can buy. And I don't have it, but I think I must have it. And I may possibly manage to sneak to one of the snowdrop events before the season is out. So who knows? Maybe I will get one before snowdrop season comes to a close. Can I come to your rescue? Yes, please. Well, uh, because we have got Trump and Trump, Trump's is a snowdrop. I first saw it in the English. No, no, it was in the the RHS magazine. Um, Roy Lancaster used to have a regular page and he always had the most wonderful plants in his garden that you wanted and you couldn't grow. You couldn't get and things like that. And he was talking about Trump's and he said somebody, a uh, very kind lady, he'd mentioned it somewhere and she'd heard he'd mentioned it and she, he hadn't got it. So she sent him a clump a very generous clump. And I have to say, it was my introduction to the virescent or the green varieties, the little green pately bits on the outer, out, on the outside of the outers, the outer petals that, that swung me in this way. And we've got several now, lots of different ones, but I mean, Alan Gray has a little bit of virescence on the outside, Snowdrop. Um, and Cowhouse Green is one Ooh. that I love. Yeah. It's a very old variety, and I'm about to dig that up and divide it as well. But it's quite a late variety, so that's only just starting to open now. Um, and it's nice to have a long season of snowdrop. But going back to Trump's, Trump's has produced many, many different varieties. There's Trump Alute, there's Trump, there, goodness knows how many. Um, but Trump's itself is a very good snowdrop for increasing, and it increases very quickly. Um, and I was going to say I'd like to dig some up and put them in a pot and then I'll just leave them in the pot until our paths cross. And then you will have, maybe maybe it won't happen until the bulbs have died down. Doesn't That doesn't matter. But if I'd done it and I put it on Thordis's pile, how's that? Oh, I would <laughs> love that. I love it. My pile, my little mini mountain of, of plants. <laughs> uh, how but, I mean, you, you mentioned very briefly some of the new varieties. And, and um, one particular one from Joe is Princess Benny. Um, and Princess Benny is a double peculiform. And that means that all the petals are, all the petals in the flower are the same length. So you know you get that little green bell, green marked bell in the middle of a snowdrop. Well, they're all the same length. So if you turn it upside down, it looks like the inside of a ballroom skirt or something. And these lovely little pinky orange um, bubbly bits in the middle. But that full flower, he's absolutely got, absolutely got that full double peculiar form and it is splendid it's absolutely stunning to look at it's very very expensive of course at the moment um and if i said a thousand pounds i wouldn't be selling it cheap because that's what the cost of it was um it will come down in future years as they get to be more and more of them but you know this for snowdrop i mean you think it's uh, and well it's probably taken between 15 and 20 years yeah. for joe to produce this um, with crossing and back crossing and you've got to twin scale the bulbs and then you've got to grow the, the twin scaling produces bulb bills so you you know and it's very it's very intense it's you've got everything has got to be terribly sterilized i've observed and, joe doing this and it's it's so there is so much involved i mean not not least you know it's almost like but, a heart surgeon working yeah. way doing it then you've got to grow those little bulbs on for three to five years before they reach flowering size. Um, so you can see it's quite a long and involved process to get decent numbers of them. Um, but I'm looking very, very forward. That's my Flomo, by the way, Princess Benny. I'm, I'm looking very, very, 
looking forward to having a Princess Benny or two in the garden. Hopefully five or seven or 12 or 14, but you know. <laughs> and and actually another FLOMO, um, you mentioned Daphne, Mary Rose. I've been, you also mentioned waiting lists. I put myself on a, you know, let me know when it's available list for that three years ago or something. I don't know. Uh, and uh, never got an email. I don't know if it ever will be available. But I, I, I kind of hope not right now because I haven't got anywhere to put it. But I thought I'll put myself well, on I'll the tell list. you, I have, to, I'll put, I have had a piece of news today that one very, very well-known wholesale um, nursery supplier is has now has been micro-propping it and is now offering um, very young plants for sale. <laughs> so it... I just felt I felt me and everybody else listening to and watching this podcast just sort of getting excited and possibly digging into their past. I think you can safely say that by 2025, there will be young plants bit for sale quite widely. How exciting. And you know what? The good thing about it is you mentioned getting drawn into things because there's a big hype or whatever. I don't care whether it's ubiquitous. That's just a really exciting plant to me. That colour of flower, the scent, the leaves, I, all of it together. I don't care whether everyone else has one. I want one. Well, no, that, and that's as it should be, because that's your taste. I mean, so many people are put off plants by municipal planting. I mean, cotton cottonistas or cottonistas, as they say. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's been ruined by being in um, supermarket car parks and around the football ground and things like that. Um, and, and people don't want it because they've they've seen too much of it. They've had their fill of it. I've had my fill of filaria. Um, I've, I've never liked it. Graham bought one, put, we put it in the garden here. Um, and I did actually eventually get rid of it because it, it, to me, it's it. I don't like this habit of growth. And every, you saw it in every little suburban garden. They'd made a front edge of it or something. And I used to have to go, oh, please don't. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, that um, you get these associations? So for me, a good old cotton Easter, I love, sort of regardless of, of any municipal planting I've seen in which to be honest is nearly every municipal planting we used to have one against the front window of my parents house and I would just sit on the sofa the other side of the window and because it was right up against the glass you could see all the bees visiting the tiny hmm. flowers and I absolutely the birds after berries it was wonderful was that Cotoniasta horizontalis I, I'm not sure actually but it's called the fishbone yeah. one it has some I'm not sure it was but uh, yeah branches yeah that is one of my favourite plants, in actual fact. I love it because I just love the structure of it. Yeah. I love the fact that it has such a long season of interest. You know, you've got very, very early into growth, little signs of growth, then you've got all the lovely flowers. And as you say, the bees and the insects are all over it. Yeah. And then as we go through the period of the summer when it's not doing very much at all, winter, autumn comes and it's got those lovely red berries. And then and then later on, after the red berries, the leaves turn red before they then drop. And then you've got this fabulous skeletal form. Yeah. So it's got what's not to like about about it it's yeah. got a lovely lovely shape a lovely form and it's an easy plant i i do love it i've got it in the garden here well there you go mm. if you want to love a cotoneaster go for horizontalis and if you like variegated foliage there's a very very nice variegated version of it as well i prefer the plain green one but you have what you like <laughs> it's your garden absolutely I have loved this. What a wonderful planty chat. Uh, we will hopefully manage to fit in a March special as well. We also mentioned hepaticas as part of this conversation. Fingers crossed. Coming up shortly on the Talking Dirty podcast will be rather a special episode if you like hepaticas. We haven't recorded it yet, though, so the less said, the better in case I jinx it. Uh, until next time, <laughs> thank you very much for joining us and happy gardening. Happy gardening, everybody. Looking forward to hepaticas. <laughs> hey, 4Ds here. 
just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening, and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.